You'll be able to remember the name for both of these. <laughs> I don't know. For a second. The Killers of Women. I liked it better in that one. Death Becomes Her? Is that what this is called? Hello, and welcome to the Original Remake Podcast, where we discuss and compare an original film and its remake. Hello, and welcome to the Original Remake Podcast, where we discuss and compare an original film and its remake. Ultimately, we seek answers to three questions. Does the remake do justice to the original? And if you just watch the remake, do you get a good sense of why the original was successful or not successful and thus remade? But most of all, which movie to watch, the original or the remake? Allow me to present myself formally. Goldthwaite Higginson Doa, Ph.D. I saw the sign in your window advertising a room to let. I'm looking for a quiet tenant. Madam, you are addressing a man who is quiet and yet not quiet. Allow me to introduce you to my friends, these devoted and passionate musicians. Y'all don't play no hippity hop songs with the title spelled off funny. Oh, no, no, no. We play church music. But I don't propose to inflict our rehearsals on you. Do you have a root cellar? This looks promising. Well, gentlemen, here you are. Let us make beautiful music. This is the riverboat, gambling den, cash cow. Go away. Is our inside man. Damn skip. At the end of every shift, all the cash is moved down to the county. And where is the counting room? Underground. Underground. The general shall be directing our little tunneling operation. Blunt is our blunt instrument. Goth pancake. We'll be doing demolition work. By all means, let us keep this to ourselves. Just thought I'd leave y'all with some cinnamon cookies. There'll be no more. Unfortunately, Ms. Munson has complicated the situation. So I'm joined today by our... I guess recurring guest Derek Stewart, writer of many uh, horror websites. <laughs> I don't remember what Peter made up because I don't usually listen to our episodes. But I believe if you go back to uh, what the Halloween and the Evil Dead episodes we did with you, uh, yeah, he, he kept he kept really filling out your resume online as far as film criticism goes. But we're we're going to change it up on this one. We're not talking about a horror film. I don't think depends on your your viewpoint, I guess, of this, these dark comedies, but we're going to be talking about the 1955 lady killers and the 2004 lady killers. So the first one, the original is directed by Alexander McKendrick, who I didn't know much about until this week. And I was, I was telling you offline that, uh, for war machine versus war horse, I was in a recording on sweet smell of success. And I didn't realize it was the same director, which, um, Obviously, with this with the Lady Killers, the Alec Guinness starring version, um, it's very, very British. I think in its comedic beats. Absolutely, all the way through with with everyone actually. Uh, I felt. And then you get the far more subtle Coen Brothers 2004 version, which uh, has you know callbacks <laughs> to irritable bowel syndrome, and uh, also, as you said uh, earlier, very progressive in how uh, casts. Um, <laughs> people of color in particular roles, which My goodness. before we get into that too much, um, 
I just saw this today, actually, because we're releasing this episode the weekend after Hail Caesar, where there was um, a film writer who I've heard on some other uh, podcasts. Uh, I don't remember her name. Jen Yamamoto or something. I don't know. But she's uh, she, she's written for, I think, The Dissolve, and she's now writing for, I think, The Daily Beast. She was on, I think, a press junket with the Coen Brothers, and she asked them uh, basically about their lack of uh, actors, people of color, in Hail Caesar, which that film yeah. takes place in the 50s Hollywood studio system. So, Sure. So, I mean, they, there's yeah. an accurate depiction of the time, for sure. Right. But it really had me thinking, in conjunction with watching their 2004 Lady Killers, about that fact that there's not been a lot of uh, characters that are not white in their films. And I don't know if maybe the reason I had never thought about that or maybe they had never been targeted for this before is because they often write stupid characters or they write characters who are extremely flawed. So if they're not someone like Tom Hanks, who's just a complete goofball here, if it's not you know George Clooney and in, in Intolerable Cruelty or something like that, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, you have characters like in Fargo who are criminals who will throw their buddies in the wood shepherd. So do you think that's the reason maybe they've avoided that type of criticism before is because the characters they write aren't extremely likable or very intelligent? I I don't know about that actually. Um, because you know, you, you, you could easily have the possibility of writing a character uh, played by a black actor, but the character not being a black character that you are, or a stereotypical black characterization, um, in which you were writing, and um, as well, I'm sure we'll get to discuss in the the remake of Lady Killers. Uh, that's that's kind of throughout uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, Marlon Wayans' character is written as a a early to mid two thousands black guy uh, in a rap video, <laughs> um, and, and so I I'm not sure what their you know what their approach uh, truly is to that. Um, I don't know if it, you could use the argument of oh well they just they write you know stupid characters and so we'll just make sure that they're white to avoid any potential backlash um, from the larger I guess public. But you know, I, I think in the black community though, if you're if you're going back and watching this film, much like I am uh, as a, as a black male, uh, I kind of walk away from it uh, with some some certain feelings uh, as far as characterization goes. Yeah, I, I felt the the same way. Obviously, as uh, you know, a Kentucky straight white male, mm-hmm. um, but it, it it made me wonder just because this is a 2004 remake of a 1955 film, and I felt like the 2004 version feels far more dated than the 1955 British film. Maybe it's because I don't I know shit about you know Great Britain. I I don't know. Maybe they could be like, oh, that's not how people act anymore. But I did feel like the Marlon Wayans character would not fly in 2015. If they were releasing this today, there would be a lot of press, a lot of articles written about the way they portray that character, which I think you nailed on the head as far as an early to mid two thousands rap video, not a real person, but none of the characters are real people at all, but his by far raises, I think, the most red flags as far as like it made it made me very uncomfortable. Like I don't find this funny. Like this, this feels like this crosses you know some sort of line here that I'm not comfortable with in 2016 now. Well, I, and I don't know if it, it changes. Uh, I definitely am, am not entirely sure if it changes any of my opinion of it. If if Marlon Wayans was allowed uh, kind of any 
wiggle room or freedom to make the character his own. Um, even if that is the, the case, I, I, it still makes me somewhat uncomfortable. Uh, it, it, one thing it does do is kind of hit the nail on the head of even in 16 years, uh, how, I guess, uh, from a societal perspective, uh, what's politically correct uh, uh, and what is not. Because like you said, in, in the climate of today's society, that would not fly. Um, in a lot of ways, I think there'd be uh, a, a crazy amount of backlash for Marlon Wayans for even taking that role, as well as the Cohen brothers for writing a role that was so linearly focused on it being um, the stereotype of the black male in America. Um, so it, it <laughs> I was a little shocked uh, because I watched uh, the 2004 film first um, and went back and watched the remake. And I was like, oh, there's. There's, there's none of that in no. this film. I just thought maybe it was part of the remake elements, um, and that is that was not the case at all. No, okay, so in the original we have, uh, I would say Alec Guinness and Tom Hanks, and both their portrayals uh, are, are similar. Uh, I mean, it's different cultural backgrounds. Um, Tom Hanks is really, I think, making fun of like the old South, like the Southern gentleman. Yeah. Which we don't really, at least in the film, ever know if that's totally, if that's Legit. him or not. Like, I actually, like, I feel like with Alec Guinness and his version of the professor who comes to, you know, rent this room from this this elderly woman, I felt like he let down the facade at times. Uh, it's Now, by no means is it as broad as what Tom Hanks is. Sure. Um, in that respect, I feel like Tom Hanks is maybe maybe the only thing that's successful about the Coen brothers, like his performance. And maybe it's just because he's built up so much goodwill, uh, especially as a, an early comedic actor. So seeing him return to that after doing mostly drama in the nineties the was a pleasant surprise. Um, I also liked quite a bit uh, of uh, Irma P hall as like the, I guess the, the older woman in the lady killers who is far more combative than the oh than the yeah. one in the fifty five version of uh, I think it's Katie Johnson as Mrs. Wilberforce, um, who she's portrayed as basically like I think anyone's sort of gentle old grandmother who's having the wool pulled over her eyes and it's just kind of annoying. Um, yeah. So did you have any? You know, we talked a little bit about the issues with Marlon Wayans as one of the the henchmen of Tom Hanks. Do you have any issues with Irma P. Hall's performance here? Well, it's. I hope I'm not walking into some uh, contradictory rut here because uh, with Irma P. Hall's character, um, it was very reminiscent of a lot of the older black women that were at my church growing up. Uh, so her role, in a lot of ways, uh, felt realistic without becoming a caricature of of I guess the culture, if that makes any sense. Um, uh, she a lot of her elements and her kind of. Uh, you know, she was not, you know, fooling around uh, with these guys for the most part. And she, you know, she kind of held their feet to the fire in a lot of ways. That's, that's kind of what the environment in which I grew up around. Um, I mean, she's a strong with, character. Unlike the, unlike the original version, she's, she's not sure. someone who's going to be run all over or run around. Like she will cut them off when she feels that she's being messed with in some way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even the, you know, the, I, I laughed uh, pretty heartily during the church scenes, uh, because if you know much about, uh, 
black communities and black churches. Uh, all of those elements, yeah, even the, the pastor and the uh, you know the, the minister of music, the guy with the, the big hair and, and all of that, that's kind of the running joke within black culture about black churches. Um, and so for some for whatever reason, I felt much more comfortable with, with that uh, because I didn't feel like it was nearly as much of an, an indictment. Or um, uh, even a really a, a negative viewpoint. There's really nothing negative about Irma's character in a lot of ways. She was just a strong older black lady. Um, but it, I think it's in contrast to Marlon William or Mar- Marlon Wayne's character because um, I mean he was just this you know just bumbling asshole. Um, that well, you know every other word. Was, go ahead. <laughs> I want to jump in here and just say, okay, so he's go their he's their inside man into so the. Yeah. The original version, it's much simpler, and that's – I mean, we're focusing a lot on – which I knew we would, the sort of the, sure. the race aspect of it, because it, it really does stick out in the 2004 version. But you know, the the, the, the goal is the same, to, to rent a room from an elderly lady, and because it has some sort of close proximity to this crime that they're going to commit. Right. Now, being familiar with the 2004 version, um, I – knew that one. So I expected something similar, but I actually felt like it was handled far better in the original because they basically are only using her property because it's close to the train tracks that they have access to, to getting on the train. But the crime they're committing is basically, is just a a stick up like an armed robbery, just of of a car, like going to a, to a bank and that's it. It's far more convoluted in the Coen brothers version where they're digging a tunnel to to this casino boat and so you know all the gambling takes place on the boat which they don't have access to but they keep the money the vault, the vault is on land and so marlon wayans is he's a very prominent member of this film unfortunately being you know not just him specifically but this character and the way it's written being the worst part because he is the one that is going to allow them access well, not access to the vault, but allow them to abscond with it without anyone being the wiser, because he will kind of cover their tracks inside the vault. Liter- I mean, l- I mean, literally, yeah. and he <laughs> covers every <laughs> their tracks up after they blow it up. Yeah, no one knowing. But he gets fired. There, I mean, that's the first. That's one of the many issues they they have in the in the film. And I think both films suffer a little bit from being unbelievable as far as what happens, the trouble spots, as far as the heist itself. Uh, one thing I like, I prefer, and I don't know how you feel uh, about the original is that the elderly woman provides more of that than in the, in the remake. It's like, she just comes in for the end game. Like the, a lot of the trouble spots they have is with, as I mentioned, JK Simmons has IBS and just all sorts of shenanigans that, that come into it. I'm finally gonna get to my point here. Marlon Wayans is fired as the inside man. Oh God. Damn. Come on girl. Let me get one little peek. Don't be cruel. Come on, just one butt cheek. Pull that ass out and make it clap. Ah, <laughs> uh, just because I'm just like a janitor don't mean you got to do me dirty. This motherfucker's the jackpot. Come on, girl. Come on, we ain't blowing these dice. You know, I'm a seven on the rollout, but I'm a ten the hard way. And I ain't just talking crap. Mr. Gudge, she had an ass that could pull a bus. I mean, Gudge, it was more than ass. It was literature. Yeah, I don't care how big her ass was, but Sam, you're fired. You say what? There is no fraternizing with customers on the Bandit Queen. Clean out your locker. But Mr. Good, I wasn't trying to get out of here, you fired. You can't fire me. I'll sue your ass. <laughs> 
Sue me? For what? For fucking punitive damages, man. Punitive damages? Yeah, punitive damages. You goddamn skip it. Oh, oh, punitive damages. Yeah, I see why you find me, Mr. Good. It's simple and plain. You find me because I'm black. McSam, everybody on the custodial staff is black. Your replacement is going to be black. His replacement, no doubt, will be black. But well, a fucking judge is going to be black, motherfucker. Oh. And you, you're going to stand tall before the man. Oh. And your replacement's going to be black, motherfucker. Thank you. All of that, I was, I was just like, oh, God. Like, I just, I was like, this is, for this to be a key plot point, they really, they really just jumped into it, didn't they? Just, they just went both feet in. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, for better or for worse, elements of his character would would be uh, largely accepted to a higher degree if it were in an all-black casted film. Like if it were That's a, a scene point. from Barbershop. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there is a very similar scene like that in, in Barbershop. However, uh, supplanting this one black character in this all, for the most part, this white vehicle that is even a remake of a British film uh, <laughs> and, and having that one scene uh, just made me feel almost like watching uh, like scenes of Birth of a Nation of just them eating like chicken in Congress, uh, that kind of thing. Like it was just so blatant uh, to me um, in in a lot of ways. And like you said, it, it is uh, it's just kind of I, I don't know if why it was needed. I guess that's my thing. Why why was that arc for his character, if you want to call it that? Why was that even necessary for the film? Um, well, okay. do you think it's necessary? No, I, I think there's. I mean, it's it's a it's a blatant shortcut. Uh, and there's just a lot of easy jokes. Like, you know, uh, I, I hate the IBS stuff. I hate that. Um, it just feels like they're really taking the easy way out with a lot of things. Like there is one moment I like with the Marlon Wayne's character where JK Simmons brings his, his girlfriend to the, the waffle hut. Uh, there's sort of meeting place. He brings an outsider. Seems that the poet was right. Troubles never singly come. Oh, no, we can get through the rock. No worries there. Easiest thing in the world. Why would just blow right through it? I got a pyro license. Just uh, bore a hole in the rock, pack in a little plastique. Igneous blows pretty good. And then we Hello, just... Garth. Am I ordering that primer cord? Yes, Mountain. We were just talking about that. And some plastique. What the fuck is this? Well, this is Mountain Girl. Mountain is my right hand. She helps me out with ordinance. Helps me with damn near everything. Hey, you bought your bitch to the Waffle Hut? <clears throat> I, I must confess myself to be puzzled as well. I thought it was understood that when it came to our little enterprise, mom was the word. Of course, I understand that, but this is Mountain Girl. I don't keep secrets from Mountain. That's not how you maintain a loving, caring relationship. You bought your bitch to the Waffle Hut. <laughs> the man... Bought his bitch to the Wobble Hood. All right, look, you. I will thank you to stop referring to Mountain that way. She is the other half of my life. Everybody looking at me like I'm some kind of fucker for losing a sorry-ass job. And this motherfucker brings his bitch to the motherfucking Wobble Hood. Son of a bitch, punk. Shut your goddamn mouth. You better raise the fuck up, fucker. No, 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 you all back the fuck up. You all back that shit the fuck up. What? 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 Please, gentlemen, this behavior does you no credit in the eyes of your colleagues, nor in those of the other patrons of this waffle hut. Punk. Oh, look at this. I got blueberry syrup on my safari jacket. 
Gentlemen, I propose that we consider the matter of this woman, Mountain Water, to be... Mountain Girl. I'm so very sorry. I propose that we consider this matter closed. And we shall choose to trust her, since we have no choice, and since she shall share only in Mr. Pancake's portion of the booty. Of course. Wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, you damn right you won't. Up yours, punk. Oh, fuck you and the Swiss miss. The amount of disposing of our Coach. igneous Coach. impediment Coach. is also Coach. closed, <laughs> settled. It leaves us only with Coach. the question of Gawain retrieving his job. Coach. Yes, love. Couldn't we just bribe the guy? I did find that funny. <laughs> However, they're putting it, you know, as you said, with the, the sole black character, he's the one that freely is calling a woman a bitch. Which, if you said, if it was better, if it was a more diverse cast, you'd be like, okay, so that's just that one particular yeah. personality, that one individual, not Absolutely. representing, okay, that's the black character. And it's a funny no. scene. It's a funny scene. As you said, if, oh. it, if it was an all-black cast, it would be extremely funny that you would see that one having mm-hmm. such a particular issue, in, in particular with the Waffle Hut, that seemed to be some sort of crossing some sort of line, which really is just absurd humor at that point, like... It, it is. Well, and there's a lot of absurdity, uh, I think, to it in a lot of ways. But like you're saying, uh, Tom Hanks' character, uh, at no point would you expect him to just say, you bring your bitch <laughs> and repetitive. No. <laughs> you would never expect J.K. Simmons' character to play that role. Um, but when you saw Marlon Wayans, it was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense with, with what we had seen previous. Um, and I do agree with you. I think a lot of the humor actually in the original was – um, much better to me, um, and, and a lot less blatant and over the top than the humor that was used in the remake. The IBS stuff, I absolutely hated. Um, it was like you said, it, it was what they call cheap pops in wrestling, just a quick way to, to get the crowd to, to laugh. And, um, and I almost feel like, oh, that, that humor would have worked really well with a 14 year old, but I don't want 14 year olds watching this film <laughs> and seeing characterizations like no, that. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's the Coen brothers who, at this point have already made, you know, Barton Fink and Miller's mm-hmm. crossing and Fargo. Like, I, I don't know. It just, it feels, um, I, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, uh, Trevor Noah, the new host of the daily show. Like he, yeah. he, he had some flack because he, you know, he's a, a young comedian. And when he got the gig, people were digging up his Twitter timeline. And it was like, I think sure. back in 2010 and he had some jokes that, um, uh, you know, a lot of people found misogynistic or I think even worse than that, many people just said just weren't very funny jokes to begin with uh, to sort of be towing that line. And I find that far more understandable than I do someone, as I said, who's made Fargo at this point in their in their career to kind of be going back to the those, those I don't know, I don't know what your wrestling it's like, uh, uh, reference was. Cook. It's almost like Dane yes. Cook came in as a ghostwriter in a lot of ways. <laughs> oh, and, and cheap pops are like uh, in wrestling where a guy will go to whatever town that, that the show is in and say, you know, here in Las Vegas, and then the crowd goes crazy. Just just the, oh, that's easy. Of course you're going to get applause for mentioning the city that you're in. People, and that was that's us. Approach. We're Las Vegas. We like that. We like us. Absolutely. <laughs> we're actually on a plane, so we're going across the country on this episode. <laughs> we will end in Massachusetts. <laughs> So I think the the closest we get to the original sort of version of the henchman is the Ryan Hurst character as Lump. Because yeah. one round. 
Yeah, he, he he's just he's slower. He's the the he's the big he's the muscle that's not quite as smart as the other guys. And I don't know if they were just trying to make it a little more edgy because I will admit that if you're going to do a remake of the Alec Guinness starring version with Peter Sellers, that if you did it the same way, the same you know script probably doesn't you know bring the house down as far as a 2004 comedy. Like you're going to have to find some other approach than. You know, isn't it silly that they're they're going to be thieves living with an old lady? Like, you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> that pretty much just doesn't doesn't uh, attract crowds. In I mean, 2004. maybe with a CBS sitcom, you could do that. Like, a, maybe that because you know that's those aren't the the edgiest you know material. Like Big Bang Theory. <laughs> Look at these dorks; they can't relate to women. Isn't that hilarious? In season eight, <laughs> <laughs> yes, after, nine years <laughs> after they're married to uh, Kaylee Cuoco, <laughs> they still don't know how to relate to women. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I understand why they went that different direction, but man, like I'm like you, I watched the, uh, the, the original second because I was very familiar with the first and it's, it wasn't edgy, but it was like a relief just because it wasn't like, it wasn't making me feel bad for watching it. It wasn't offending me anyway. I was like, Oh, okay. This is just, you know, harmless yeah. fun. Then this is just, this is fine. Like, and the other thing I, I liked better is, you know, we talked about the Irma P. Hall version of the elderly lady. Um, I actually liked the the fact that she wasn't a strong-willed woman and she seemed sort of confused and batty. I felt like it made that realization of what who these guys were, that they were the ones who had committed this heist. I found that that actually like really worked. Like it it made that moment without Guinness like staring over the newspaper incredibly threatening from both because I did not expect her to like act so cool about it like she was like telling her guests like you know we need to excuse ourselves for just one moment like she was i I was wondering i was like what do i not know about this woman that she's willing to be like i'm going to i'm going to go toe-to-toe with you and you're gonna have to deal with me as much as i like that with the Irma p hall version throughout it's certainly no surprise when she doesn't put up with any shit which i i think exactly that's why that third act turn works better in the original because it's totally unexpected that she would be that strong-willed there at the end Oh yeah, and it kind of it kind of comes out of nowhere, and I think that you know she has that momentary like aha, I've been duped because with you know with in in the original she's actually used, uh, you know she's actually getting the money and transporting it for them, uh, you know I think that's to some degree I think that's even more uh, offensive of a thing to do against someone actually have them being an accessory. Uh, versus just being the house in which you use. And then try uh, to convince her of that fact that she has yeah. committed some sort of criminal act and will go down if she rats oh, on yeah. him. I planned the robbery, Mrs. Wilberforce. I wanted to help them. No, I, I don't think, even if what you say is true, I, I still still don't think it can be said to be enough justification. Madam, how can you be so harsh? You're a cruel woman. But you sit in judgment on your fellow creatures. I'm sorry. This is getting us nowhere. We must do something. Quite right, Mr. Harvey. We've got to tell her. Mrs. Wilberforce, I wanted to spare you this, but I'm afraid the police are after you, too. Mm, That's right. You're as hot as the rest of us, ma'am. If they pick her up, there's no saying what they may do to her. Pick me up? Would you mind The job was planned in her house. She carried the lolly for us. Yes, I I know I carried the 
the knowledge... She was ignorant of the plan, of course. Ignorance in the sight of the law is no excuse, even if we swear that she didn't know what she was doing. They never believe us. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd believe anything we said? Oh, but this is ridiculous. Uh, I know the superintendent. I shall she deny any knowledge. Never stand up to it, of course. The grilling, the rubber houses. The rest of her life, sewing mailbags. Mailbags? And no one to look after the parents. Oh. We won't let them get you, Mrs. Wilberforce. Why not? What's she ever done for us? If they get us, I'll tell them she planned the job. I tell them she planned the big one. Oh. The East Castle Street job. I think that makes um, Alec Guinness's character uh, far, I won't say worse, um, but far more interesting that he would be willing to go to that extreme of, of you know, before they even make the decision of we have to off this this old lady, um, it, it is we're going to make her think that she's done something wrong. This pure, uh, or this you know this this symbol of of purity. This this sweet old lady who just lives alone in this nice home with a dead husband. Uh, we're going to make her think she's a criminal, um, and, and see how gullible that she really is. It also. So it also allows all of the hiccups in the heist to be, you know, believable and effective enough because his plan involves someone being an un- unwitting participant in it. So since she's unwitting, she's going to go about her daily business. Like there, there's an, a very long set piece where she gets into an argument with a man who is abusing a horse, <laughs> which <laughs> talk about being something that probably you or I, uh, it might as well have been taking place on Mars that she would just be driving through town and see a man like beating a horse for stealing yeah. his fruit and vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking only like 60 years ago. And I'm like that, that is God. That's medieval. That's, what is that? Because of that, you know, it, it's more so than like the, the 2004 version where she just comes home and is going to interrupt their digging. Like she's just going to open like it. They try to have, I guess it's a, uh, allusion to the original where she kept interrupting their band practice by offering them tea or being nice to them. But it, I don't think it makes as much sense that the, uh, the woman in the 2004 version would open the door just to berate them. Like, why would she, like, that's one thing I didn't like about that character is why would she even give a shit enough to come down, just open the door, just to gripe at them and then to wander off again. Like, well, I, I, I guess, you know, if I'm and I, you know, I've never actually owned a home that I would open the door to just someone random and their band to, you know, <laughs> hold up for for weeks at a time. Uh, and I, you know, they actually have a a a CD player, boombox of some sorts, right next to their instruments. Um, but uh, you know, why am I, why am I putting up with their shit? Uh, you know, if they're annoying me, then it's you know they might have two or three strikes and it might just be time to leave uh, I do like that you mentioned that that moment in the original uh, with Miss Wilberforce uh, at out in the streets because that is her one moment of showing uh, you know the group that if pushed <laughs> in her own way she won't put up with shit <laughs> she will let somebody have it uh, she is a sweet lady but if she takes issue with you and and how you treat a horse um you well, know she'll it's going to the end of the line i mean she's gonna get yeah. the authorities involved and she's gonna hang around and make sure she's gonna go to the police station yeah and make absolutely. sure 
she's this moralistic individual who won't allow injustice, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think that's actually similar for both of their uh, characters is, is both older ladies, although their approach may be different. Um, neither one of them, for religious reasons or otherwise, um, they do not like uh, miscarriages of justice in, in any way, shape, or form, which is a great contrast uh, to the professor um, and his band of individuals. <laughs> now, okay, so we've we've really thrown a lot of you know hate to the the remake uh, and a lot of love to the original. I'm not. I was never a fan of how the. Um, I, I guess it's the 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 spiritual being in the 2004 version that sort of sees to the unwitting end of these various uh, men. Now. Yeah. It starts out initially uh, as a disagreement, which has been building up between Marlon Wayans and J.K. Simmons that ends in an accidental death. And of, co- of course, now I had forgotten this. I, I So on rewatch, I didn't remember which one, I guess, buys it first. But of course, it's Marlon Wayans, who's the person, first one <laughs> to go. That's why you brought me on. It's very similar to a horror plot. The black man gets it first. <laughs> And I sort of hung my head. I'm like, oh, come on. Like, really? <laughs> yeah, this was pre-Whiplash. Did Simmons really earn the you know, advancement to the next round? Um, Spider-Man had already came out, so. Uh, that, that's true. Good point. Um, so that, you know, that starts out as the, the two going at it. And then it becomes, I think it escalates rather quickly, um, which I think the original handles the... Uh, combativeness between the men in a more natural way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, I believe it's the, is it the Peter Sellers character? That first shot's their runaway? He's the, he's the one that you can tell is not totally on board with, right. with everything. And this one, I don't know if we have that so much as we just have the characters, as we said, Marlon Wayne's and J.K. Simmons who don't like each other. Uh, and J.K. Simmons tries to keep getting out of things, so he's the first one to try to, you know, I guess abscond with the, the money. But really, it's it's different because in the the remake, they basically have this godlike presence, sort of, uh, you know, this this <laughs> I don't know the be it the cat or whatever or the cat or the husband, the deceased husband. Uh, is the embodiment of the, the spiritual being that's overtaking this house. Is he in the cat? Like, is he, is he, the, I don't know. Cause I felt like, you know, has he been reborn as this sort of spiritual protector or something? Like, I don't, I, it was weird because the, and I know the Coen brothers really like the use of a cat, which we see in inside Lewin Davis. That's always sort of with yep. this folk singer. Um, but you know, Hanks goes very similar to Alec Guinness, in the original, like it's just a, an accident. He's just sort of hit on the, the head and falls, but the Coen brothers really play it up more. And I, I didn't like that as much. So I was interested in your take on it being a more spiritual person than myself, which you <laughs> you could probably say that most cats and dogs are more spiritual than myself, but, uh, or a chair or anything, a, a bottle, whatever this DVD shelf. Uh, did you like Kelly Coen brothers? use that or use her dead husband like as a sort of overseer like with that that portrait 
I didn't. I, and I, I know that I, I keep knocking on, on the remake, and I don't mean to, but they just didn't do as good of a job. Um, when when you look at those scenes where she's looking at her husband, I mean, the same thing happens in the original. Uh, it's just kind of the ante has been up to, to where there's this long gaze between picture and uh, almost like an American Gothic-style painting in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's, it's really piercing. Um, but it, it wasn't. I don't know. It wasn't enjoyable from uh, a realistic perspective, obviously, uh, with these odd spiritual cat elements. Uh, and it wasn't humorous to me either, the way they, uh, you know, each character was, was off. I found it much more effective uh, in the original with the smoke. Um, and, and using that as an element uh, where you wouldn't know where someone was at. And then when the smoke dissipated, then you'd kind of found out, oh, well, this character has met their demise. Um, and it's actually used in that, in, I think, in that final showdown uh, between Alec Guinness's character and maybe Lewis Harvey, I'm not sure. Um, but in that final confrontation with the, with the gun and all that, I found that to be, uh, I won't say riveting, uh, but it was more interesting uh, to me than... Uh, than what we saw in 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 the remake with the what is it that fell on uh, Tom Hanks's character's head and they're standing on a bridge and it's like a piece of the uh, concrete or something like yeah. uh, that sort of just falls off. Um, the, the biggest leap you have to make uh, with the original is not not this sort of spiritual being that's sort sure. of causing this havoc, but the, it's a revelation about the professor character himself. That, as I said with the newspaper thing, maybe we got more of a hint of uh, there was added menace because the Tom Hanks version, uh, he's still bemused by this, even when one of his you know fellow men lump tries to kill him. Yeah, you know, he's just sort of amused at how the turn of events have worked in his favor for at least a few seconds. But the Alec Guinness version, it's like there's something that when things start to go wrong that the facade peels away so that he, he sort of reveals who he truly is, who is darker, a, a crazed, somewhat crazed individual who sort of revels in that darkness, who has like been waiting for that moment. And so once the con is over, he, he becomes like sort of truly criminal and almost just animalistic. Like in the way he's looking at his fellow, it's a big leap you have to make as an audience member because it's, it's, it's a total one eighty from what, this sort of charming criminal we've seen before who's like, he's the brains behind the operation that is chasing this, you know, his former associate around, as you said, through the, through the, the smoke of the, of the trains. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and not only that, but it seems like he's willing to put himself in harm's way. He's like hanging off that bridge, like planning for him to like come down after him and is willing to possibly him himself fall to his death or at least be shot or killed as well. So, that worked for me. I don't know, but I don't know if it would work for everybody because it is, as I said, it's unexpected. Well, and I think a lot of it, and we, we kind of touched on this at the top of the show, was uh, it is that a lot of just British humor and comedy elements that are kind of infused into Alec Guinness's character and just that old school playback to, uh, you know, I'm almost the, the bad guy with the, the putting the lady on the train tracks, right? He, mm-hmm. he is that menace. That menacing yeah. character uh, that we, unbeknownst to us, is much, uh, I would say, darker um, than than we see in the beginning. Uh, what I do like from their comparisons, or at least this is what I walked away from it as uh, understanding, is I thought both characters uh, were cowards, kind of. Uh, when, when you look at uh, these are the uh, the 
uh, architects for both of their groups. Um, but, but neither one really, at least in my impression, neither one of them really want to be the one to uh, be the lady killer. Uh, I, I think both of them try to put that death off on everyone else, and I don't know if it's that uh, they want to be the Pontius Pilate and don't want to get their, their hands bloody um, and want to manson it up, or if it's that they are the only ones that actually have any sort of interpersonal connection with her uh, whatsoever. Um, Hanks' character uh, with Irma uh, P. Hall, they, they in that in those kind of, I'm not going to call them touching moments, <laughs> but those, those moments where they're by, kind of just sitting by the fire and she's talking about her husband. I'm not going to say that, that Hanks' character for a second uh, was like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, but maybe when it really came down to, to picking who's going to do it, maybe he would just prefer that, that it just be handled without him having to have any knowledge of it. Um, and I don't know if, if you got that, that feeling from Guinness's character um, or not on that. I felt with the way his character turns that once we we watch the film to its completion, that maybe what they're saying is that if he did it, that he would he would sort of backslide into maybe some of his criminal past that he's tried to move away from, like to, sure. because he certainly seems to revel in the the hunt of his you know fellow fellow thief there and he also going back to the spiritual element of it he i like that he he sort of loses it because the plan fails him like he he seems to start blaming some other some other power blaming the the woman in particular that i think he has a line like we'll never be free of her basically like you know this, <laughs> everything we've tried to do yeah. you know has just gone awry and both films present something that you really have to kind of move past. You have to buy into the conceit that these people just wouldn't just leave. Like, um, I, I know with the, you know, the, the Hanks version, they're afraid that she's going to tell on them. Sure. But so what? It's like, you know, that, at that point, like if you're not from that area, like as we see in the film, you know, the, I guess the, the irony is, is they don't, the police don't believe her in either film. They don't believe her story anyway. So if they had just left, it would have been fine. They might have been looking over their shoulder, but nothing's really going to be chasing them because this elderly lady has no weight with the officials. Because as you mentioned with the original, she's someone that is willing to seek justice at every turn. And I think the you know the darkly comedic part in both films is that the cops... <laughs> don't really want you to be seeking justice all the time. Like, you know, yeah. a little bit is fine, but if you're seeking it constantly, then it's, it's the boy who cried wolf a little bit, which mm -hmm. is like, all right, yeah, that's, that's enough. That's, it's probably not happened as you say it has, because everything is not heightened to this degree. Right. In, in a way it's, it's uh kind of like growing up with siblings uh, uh, where my sister, the first few times might go to my parents and say, Oh, Derek did this. And they freak out and they, they are looking and, and making sure I haven't killed myself. But after, after time number 20 of the day, they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, he's, he's, he's off doing that. And it's kind of just this, this forgotten thing. Uh, I find it interesting that you have uh, a grouping of criminals who are able to concoct this, this, plan for a heist, but can't come to the conclusion of, wait a minute, what happens if we just walk out the door? <laughs> I know that's a rogue idea, uh, Professor, but what if we just put our money uh, in, our, our you know, in, our, in our stuff and just, just get out? And um, that did, you know, in the 04 version, you could at least make uh, the, the argument that 
Um, you know, if she were able to ID them and give enough information to the police and with, you know, forms of technology and, and fingerprints and all that kind of stuff. But in 19 and you know, what, 55, uh, she can go and say, whoever, uh, there's this man named one round. They're going to be like, oh, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> like, what, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to dust for fingerprints or, or, you know, look for DNA evidence? It's just not going to happen. It's say the, uh, you know, the data entry was not quite as efficient or as strong <laughs> there to, to go, go to the record books and see, pull up a, a mugshot yeah. or something. <laughs> Uh, I think exactly. it's, it's ego, isn't it? With both characters, it's ego of seeing their plan, uh, you know, pull off in a way that they not only impress the their comrades there, but it's like they're going to pat themselves on the back, like look, sure. look how clever I am. And so this woman is just not in both films is not playing the part of in the 2004 version of, you know, being this, I mean, they're really trying to take advantage of her religion in a way with the gospel music. And, you know, oh, yeah. they send her to church, they send her to a concert. Always basically she just needs to stay away. What, what I actually did like, and I thought was a pretty nice touch was they thought they could pull off certain things while she was at church because that's something she highly values, but they have a misstep and a misunderstanding of what, church is as you were saying to her particular culture her character that it would be normal for her to leave church early if she's going to have yeah if she's going to have the women over <laughs> like i actually i like that. that that was one time where i was just like okay this doesn't feel it doesn't feel like something the screenwriters put in just to uh, get us to the next scene where she catches the thieves doing something it felt like yeah that character would actually do that and those oh. those characters wouldn't realize that that's part of her routine that's part of the church going experience for her Absolutely not. I mean, to to disclose, growing up uh, for for myself, my mother uh, would oftentimes, if we had some sort of let's say long church service with this afternoon uh, kind of program with food and things of that nature, she would go home in the middle of the day or in the middle of service and make sure that that was attended to. So I kind of laughed because I could absolutely uh, see something like that, um, and I would almost expect it if you're going to either be entertaining guests or if you were going to be going back to the church taking things that she would leave. So it didn't feel kind of like you were saying. It didn't feel forced. It didn't feel contrived. Um, very well could have happened. And a lot of things in this film seem forced <laughs> across the board. We, uh, yeah, we talked a lot about the Marlon Wayans character. The other uh, minority um, member in this this group of thieves is uh, an Asian man played by uh, I can't even pronounce his name. So that, that's that's where I'm I'm going to come off as as racist. I will just try not to butcher it. And he plays a character named the General, which I think we're led to believe uh, had some sort of experience uh, with tunneling in the Vietnam War. I think is what they're they're alluding to with the calling him the General. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess depending on your point of view. They don't really give him anything else. He is he is actually just playing the other. Like he is the silent other. Cigarette. Yeah. Who That's it. is just there to be menacing in some way. So I do think that's where like, man, the the two characters that are not white are mm-hmm. easily identified just by their race as far as fitting some sort of stereotype of their or at least what cinema has portrayed the stereotype of, especially of uh, Asian actors of sort of the type of roles they play. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what do we, you know, one of the things we see a lot with Asian cultures is this expectation that they're really reserved, uh, that they that they don't speak, uh, obviously, very much, um, and that they're kind of spiritual beings uh, in their own right. Uh, and with his character, I don't really remember him saying anything uh, for the most part at all. Uh, and that was, his character was basically this silent, he could have been almost depicted as this, this silent ninja <laughs> in a way. Um, and that was, I mean, he, there were, there were no layers, uh, at all for, for him at all, uh, in, in his depiction. And so it does kind of go along with what you were saying. Uh, the minorities in the film, uh, where what we, what old school us would have expected to be a, a minority to be, unfortunately, and there's nothing else really given to them. See, I'm wondering, you know, going back to that, the, uh, the interview that I was telling you about with Hell Caesar, if you had had... You know, is that the issue with having, say, like an Asian actor? Can it can he play the role in Fargo of Steve Buscemi's uh, cohort there? Who the the joke is he doesn't talk. He's like just a silent threat. And I feel like okay, you know, you did that you did that character once, and it doesn't have any sort of negative connotations because right. there's not you know you have two white men and one is extremely talkative, one's not. But I think that, you know, to what you were saying, if they'd had another Asian actor there who's, who's let's say, playing the J.K. Simmons part. Say he's the one with irritable bowel syndrome and he's extremely talkative. I think that helps have that general character out. It outweighs it to a point where it's like, okay, you're not just playing them as, you know, silent Asian with some sort of, you know, violent experience. Where he, even in the way he disposes of J.K. Simmons, he comes up with what, like a, it's almost like an assassin's like wire. Yeah, <laughs> You, you would need something of uh, of that same, I guess, race or ethnicity to offset what would appear to be uh, the, the stereotype. And I think that's that's really the only way it would have worked. I think if you had his character be an Asian man who did not speak, but you actually gave him a reason as to why he does not speak instead of almost giving the, the wink and nod of, well, he's Asian. That's why he doesn't speak. Or Marlon Wayans is loud and boisterous. Uh, be because he is a black man that's from from the hood, you know that that kind of thing. Give me give me something else that's meatier than uh, this character comes off this way because it's part of just their culture. I would have loved the general here to have maybe some private moments with another character. Uh, it, you know, it could have been Lump, it could have been the professor, it could have been the J.K. Simmons character, Pancake, if he. Had some, and I guess more than likely it would be the professor since he's sort of uh, roped into this. You assume he has some sort of prior dealing with him that um, that he would have been extremely talkative or something. He would have like if as long as it was someone he trusted or someone he had some respect sure. for. But and, I mean, we get a very brief moment where he's attempted to be robbed at his place of business by two black men. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Oh, and, my, I actually forgot about that. My gosh. I've never and, watched it. <laughs> and he doesn't even speak, I don't think, to his wife in that, that a presumed wife in that, that scene when they're attempting robbed. He just comes in uh, silent and violent, basically. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I I will say that, obviously, I as I said, neither one of us is British, so I don't know uh, if there are those type of – uh, cultural sort of tropes, or if there's something that they're poking fun of that, that I'm just not getting because I'm not up to date with my 1950s, you know, <laughs> uh, English uh, landscape there. Uh, but I will say, watching the two of them now, that I understand that that's a film like, oh, that could easily be remade and updated. 
And if you had told me before I'd seen the Coen Brothers version, I'd be like, oh, yeah, they could. this is a layup for them. They could do this easily. But I, I do think it's a it's a misstep, and it's all of the updated stuff that makes it a misstep. So there may be something to what you're saying where it's just like this is a film where it's such a cute conceit that putting it in modern times with what we expect of sort of modern law enforcement yeah, maybe it doesn't work. I don't. I don't know. Maybe this should have been like a period piece yet again. It should have been like the and the Coens love to do period pieces. So I'm kind of surprised that they went with a modern version of this story. So, well, let me ask you this then: If they went with a period piece and decided to still go southern uh, and chose, uh, I don't know, 1960 Alabama, oh, uh, it was all the same. <laughs> My goodness, <laughs> that would just be. <laughs> Entirely poorly received. <laughs> yeah. Although if they, you could go almost uh, like the death, uh, death at a funeral uh, route with a uh, more multicultural cast. Uh, that I mean, I thought that that did a really good job at taking that source material and infusing it with different cultures, and it was still funny. And in no way uh, did I find myself, uh, you know, being offended. Uh, not not that I was horribly offended by uh, the 2004 version, but it, you know, it did leave me with some some question marks about some of the writing. See, so. I've not actually seen the uh, the uh, the updated Death at a Funeral. I guess the American version uh, yeah. versus the English one. Uh, but I do know that I'm trying to remember. Do you know who the, remember who the director was? I, I can't off the top of my head. Okay. So the original one was Frank Oz, which I did not know. <laughs> Yoda. Frank Oz, Frank, like, like the Frank Oz. Like yeah. Star Wars, Frank Oz. Yeah. Did the original <laughs> version. That's um, incredible. <laughs> and the 2010 version starring Chris Rock and Martin Lawrence, uh, Neil Laboot. Well, that's weird too. The guy who uh, is from Utah, the the Mormon who did uh, In the Company of Men and Your Friends and Neighbors, like in the late 90s, uh, with Aaron Eckhart and Ben Stiller. That's Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm, is, I'm just thrown off by that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a future episode that you and I will have to do because I, I'm shocked that those two individual filmmakers who seem out of their element on both ends of that. But, yeah. We we could get uh, really crazy and uh, do those two films and then compare it <laughs> to how, how Lady Killers is <laughs> in fact a racist film <laughs> based on source material that is not inherently racist. Okay, so that 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 poses you know that's an interesting question that I can uh, you know as as you said you're coming from a uh, a different perspective from me so I can I'm going to pose this to you. This should be fun. Going back to the, that sort of accusation of the Coen brothers where they've not had a lot of people of color in their films, and this is one of the more prominent ones, is it something where if you can't if you can't write from that particular point of view, like let, and it doesn't even have to be race-related. Let's say you're a, a male author and you can't write from the female perspective. Do you just avoid it? Do you sort of face that criticism that you – never in, have that inclusion of that, you know, that part of the world, or, or do you attempt to do so and ha and sort of fail at it as they did here? I, I think that to, to say, I can't write from that perspective really paints you into a corner in a lot of ways that that would mean that 
that uh, let's say I decided to to start writing, I could only write from the perspective of a 28 year old black man uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, and so I can't write anything else. Uh, that that's going to limit me in, in a lot of ways. It, and I, I hate to touch on that uh, my previous career in doing counseling and therapy, um, but that's also one of the arguments that comes up. How can you treat someone in a therapeutic manner if you've not been wherever they've been? That comes up with every client that I've ever worked with. Um, and my, my normal argument uh, to that is, you know, if you have cancer uh, and you go to the, to the doctor, you're not going to ask that doctor if they've had cancer. You are just hoping that they have some sort of expertise or some sort of research or training uh, to be able to treat that. You don't care if they've had cancer or not. Um, so it, if we use that analogy with, with the with the Cohen brothers, uh, I wouldn't care if they had taken some time to maybe re- to at least give off the perception that they'd research a little bit more about uh black culture to 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 an extent or you could have even have went the, the route of just writing a character just a blanket character with no blatant elements of this perception of what black culture looks like and like we said uh you know the the he with the character of uh oh, i don't know jk simmons character could have been a black character or, or hispanic man or whatever um i think that would have worked just fine um, when you're, I think when you're writing any sort of material that's not from your own, uh, I guess, moments in life or, or, or from your slants, usually you look up something about it. Um, I, you know, I've seen, we've talked about before about Halloween. And one of the things that I liked about that film where the, the girls, uh, the young women are walking through and they're just having this normal conversation that teenage girls have. And they brought in uh, Deborah Hill who helped write from the perspective of a teenage girl uh, so you get either assistance with it or you take the time to really, I think, envelop yourself in that culture that you're wanting to write from. And it helps you from writing this caricature uh, that I think that the Coen brothers fell into. But they also, I mean, they they write caricatures often. Like, uh, I, mean, um, I mean, I believe they're from Minnesota originally uh, and went to school. Uh, according to Wikipedia, they went to... I think high school in Massachusetts and went on to a film program at NYU, uh, Princeton. And one of their more successful films was raising Arizona. And so I think that it's difficult because obviously you're writing a broad comedic character with in both versions here with the, the Marlon Wayans version with Tom Hanks uh, or Nicholas cage in raising Arizona. But I think we're a little bit more aware of how Hollywood portrays, you know, people of color on film, whereas Nicolas Cage being a goofball or maybe being Southern is not as much of a sticking point. I don't know. So maybe that's, they can't, they've gotten away with stuff before because it's not been, it's never been a hot button issue making Nicolas right. Cage appear to be an idiot or a goofball. Yeah, absolutely. One, uh, I mean, I think to that point, if this were a film, uh, you know, discussing how minorities were perceived in film and you have that character. Okay. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Well, like you're talking, that you almost have to take into consideration um, historical context of of minorities in, in film and how they have been, uh, I guess, in, in in a way, uh, topcast, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase. 
Um, and so what you really end up seeing with this drama is just, oh, well, this is just a, a, another one of those moments um, in a lot of ways where you have the opportunity, uh, especially in the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years especially, to just write a character and then just cast someone um, and not necessarily be about, well, this this role, because we're throwing in the word bitch uh, five, 500 times, and all of a sudden it sounds like a Tarantino film when he's there. Uh, well, he has to be a black man, and, and you don't have to go that route i don't think anymore and i I think that's something that you know (laughs) i I will never say tarantino is cautious or aware (laughs) but the thing with tarantino is that he so wants to be a black man that he just writes all of his characters speaking that way like he i think he really does even it out as far as you know he wants vincent vega to be just as cool as Jules in that car. Yeah. Like he wants both of them to, to sort of have the same, same language. And, and so what you're saying is he wants to be an honorary brother. Is, is. I, I think he's upfront about that. I don't know. I, I mean, I, my goodness. Um, <laughs> I've also heard him say, it's kind of interesting that he, he's, he's had some pushback against, um, you know, the language he uses in film because he says that um, Southern white folk, sound closer as far as approximation to uh to to black culture as far as how they're both portrayed in film which is kind of an interesting point as far as that they're both sort of marginalized in a way and that he likes to make those characters heroic which uh in the hateful eight you know spoiler alert for that but you know there's there's a black man and a southern man that are both sort of glorified in a way or turned into sort of anti-heroes Sure. Um, so he is falling through on that. I don't know. As I said, it's always dangerous to go to Quentin Tarantino as the gospel of progressive <laughs> race relations because <laughs> the gospel. <laughs> um, but it was interesting. That's one reason I would, uh, obviously this is probably going to be a very different episode of original remake than <laughs> <laughs> saying, well, I, he... know why I was brought in for this. Episode. <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly different than, you know, talking about uh, tree rape, which I think we did on the last time you were oh, on gosh. here. So, uh, um, that's yeah i don't even have words for that i don't <laughs> i actually forgot I'll, i tried to omit that from my memory um it's still there you though. know what you can do though you can download that on your iphone you can go back and if you, you don't can? You where can. <laughs> i believe we're on itunes now peter took care of that so itunes and uh stitcher and all of that but yeah or you can go to followingfilms.com last thing we'll get out of here we've gone a little bit further because you know we we really got more into the uh somehow we got on the quentin tarantino and all of that and then we we took a little bit of a turn to uh death at a funeral uh mm-hmm. so that's just a preview of a future episode but if you were just seeing this 2004 version which both of us watched first do you do you understand why like this would have been remade like do you think the the premise is good enough to where it was sort of worthy of a remake from the original I absolutely do, actually, um, and 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 maybe I've just not had the opportunity to see a lot of films uh, with a similar plot. Uh, but I thought the plot itself, just based on that alone, right, the premise of the film, uh, uh, unsuspecting older lady, a uh, group of criminals, musicians, all that good stuff. Um, I think that's a funny premise, and you can really do a lot with it. Uh, we could knock the remake uh, for a while, uh, but one thing I will and we do, did, <laughs> and we, we uh, rightfully so. Uh, but what I did enjoy, what, oh, I won't say enjoy, but what I what I did uh, 
find it somewhat interesting was that they did try to do a couple of different things with it, uh, especially as it relates to the heist and, and not the IBS, but just the heist and some of that and uh, things of that nature. Um, so the material itself, uh, you could do a lot with. I would even wager to say I would like to see a another remake, maybe a couple more years down the road, um, that uh, is maybe a little bit closer akin to the uh, uh, 55 version. Um, I, again, because I, I think in this day and age, you still have a lot of uh, a lot of comedic things that you could do that would still make this film refreshing. Um, so absolutely, when I watched it, I was like, oh, well, of course this makes sense. Of course a film of that nature uh, would be remade because it was a British film, so that means that not a lot of folks over here know about it. Um, but then when you go back and watch the original, um, it's it's refreshing, and it's I, I thought it was uh, was quite well made, um, and, and I laughed, which – it's kind of a little bit more difficult uh, in this day and age to find some of these older films and uh, some of those comedic cues to, to still resonate today. What do you think? I think you, I, I mean, I think you could really take it and you could flip it now. Um, I think that, you know, for, for one, you could, you could take it back if this had just been a, like a BBC remake or something. Um, I would, I, I would really like to have seen uh, Idris Elba, as the lead because he's a little bit more, I think he's a little more popular over there for the, uh, the Luther series yeah. on BBC. Uh, but I thought it, this is a, a weird one because I thought of him cause he did a, a movie, I think a couple of years ago, or maybe it was last year that was like one of those sort of home invasion movies where he was like an escaped con. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, it was, it's, it's a throwaway sort of, you know, C grade genre piece. But I remember thinking like you have such an actor who's, he can't help but sort of come off as extremely intelligent and eloquent. And he was trying to play against type there. But I thought, I thought of the lady killers, even then that was like, you know, I wish this wasn't just him playing like a physical force of like a home invasion type thing. I wish they were allowing him to use his sort of natural charm to, to do so. And I thought that that's, that's something that's maybe lacking as you were talking about with the Tom Hanks, version of this is that you know alec guinness originally does just become a physical presence a physical threat of violence and so sure. you could have if you had an actor like that who has the charm and is believable uh you could do it now i don't know i don't know what his comedic chops are i know he's very good in an interview but uh i don't know if he's done a, a lot of especially this type of broad comedy before yeah. but yeah it was, i can't remember what the home invasion I movie was called but i thought of the lady killers when i was seeing that well, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's uh, with his character and his, you know, swagger. Uh, I think you're you're looking at one of two things. Either he could knock it out of the park because we'd see comedic elements that we didn't know existed with him in conjunction with all of these other attributes, um, or it would be something that I would have to turn away from <laughs> and wouldn't be able to look at because I know all of these almost James Bondian and not to get in that discussion, but James Bondian elements that he carries attempting to be um, funny and slapstick. Uh, but he does have that presence. Like you were saying with Alec Guinness's character, uh, when, even when he first not to go back and peruse too much, but when, even when he first rings the doorbell for the old, uh, for the old lady, and it's almost like a haunting everything. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's very ominous and, and it looks like that old uh, BBC TV show, dark shadows. Everything mm-hmm. just gets really, uh, over the top. And, uh, can you just have do that? Maybe, uh, you did say that, you know, you kind of wish it were flipped. And my first thought was, so, uh, 
you know, because I was confused by that. I was, I was thinking, so do you mean that this old grandma who goes to uh, unsuspecting family's home is really trying to rob a bank or something? See, I thought you, and I thought you were going to go a different way and say, you know, gender swap it and have it be, you know, a group of females that are coming to a man's home. But I, I think, unfortunately, playing it that way, that <laughs> I don't know if we would feel uh, sympathetic to the old man. I think it would be hard to it would be hard to play that without him coming off as some sort of pervert, where he's allowing oh, yeah. that know, are in his basement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think if you know uh, Emily Blunt shows up at your door, uh, another you know a very attractive British actress there. Uh, yeah, I think that we would think, okay, this guy deserves it because he's, he's got other motives by allowing these young women to come in and play their, their gospel or jazz music or whatever. So Emily Blunt rings the doorbell of Wilfred Brimley and goes downstairs. I also, uh, I have to be fair. Like if you listen to me on War Machine versus War Horse, I think even some other shows, uh, some guest spots, I, my go-to is always Elba and Blunt. Uh, back because for James Bond, I did like three or four Spectre shows on other mm-hmm. podcasts, a movie I despise. So I was, mis- I basically just kept trying to co opt it and just start talking about this imaginary James Bond movie where it was either Elba got it or to push it even further and to make it a female version of James Bond and have it be Emily Blunt. But yeah, neither one of them we're ever going to see, I doubt. So, uh, I also think that Elba would have been a better Batman than James Bond. I would rather have seen him and Bruce in the. Not the Zack Snyder, Batman vs. Superman, but someone else. Ben Affleck directing Elba as Bruce Wayne, I think, would have been great. Get real controversial here. Might <laughs> be time to turn it off. You think? Do you think so? I don't know. I'm wondering um, if... I mean, I, I do think there would be the same hooligans that were mad about Michael B. Jordan as the Human Torch yeah. in Fantastic Four, but... And even the casting of Perry White um, in Man of Steel. Yeah, there was. Uh, I remember reading like on superherohype.com a couple of years ago, and and, and uh, folks were kind of up in arms. I'm like, he's not even right. a, a important of a character. You're actually, you're right. Elba and Thor, I can't remember which god yeah. he's playing. They were up in arms because, you know, Norse gods would, would never be darker skinned. And I was like, really? Like, I don't even know who this character is. Like, he's got a I cool. I want to say that's insulting. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I mean, I would definitely say it's insulting, but. Um, I don't know. It's just, uh, you know, it's, I think once it reaches the mainstream, though, and you get away from the Internet, does it really matter? I think if Fantastic Four had been even a halfway decent movie, I don't think people would have been up in arms over the Human Torch being black. I hope not anyway. But What do you think? So do you actually feel as though that Idris Elba Batman would be accepted by general audience and hardcore geeks? I actually, I actually, actually think the geeks would come to bat for it. I don't know for some reason. I think he's earned enough geek cred. Like he's, and sure. most of that has been for Bond. I think they're they're wanting to see that in his uh, association with uh, you know Pacific Rim and stuff. He's done those side properties. He's really popular with the uh, the Luther and the Wire. So you you definitely have the sort of the nerdy you know film geeks or the the, the high minded you know Wire super fans that would be in his corner. Um, Batman might be a stretch. That might be, you know, I don't know. James Bond, I think they're like, oh, yeah, let the, let the Brits deal with that. Like, we want our Idris Elba. But Batman, maybe not. But then again, you go back to Keaton. You know, there was that was before the internet. There was outrage over a comedic actor playing Batman. So Of his height that appeared to be balding and all that. And, and the physicality of the role, you can't argue with Elba as Batman at all. That's oh, no. So. 
There's a, now we can hashtag it Batman. That'll just be after the music plays. <laughs> hashtag Batman. James Elba. Bond. James Bond. <laughs> Perry White. If you'd like to hear that future Death at a Funeral episode with myself and Derek, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or check out our show on followingfilms.com alongside other great podcasts like my co-host Peter's show, Hydrate Level 4, or my show, War Machine vs. War Horse. You can find Peter on Twitter at HLF Podcast, myself at War Machine Horse, today's guest Derek Stewart at Day Stew, and this show, the one you are listening to right now, at Original Remake. I just love, love, love the works of Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. You know, I know who he was. Kind of spooky. No, not a no, no. Not of this world. It's true. He, he lived in a dream. An ancient dream. Helen. That beauty is to be like those Nicene barks of yours that gently o'er the perfumed sea the weary wayward wanderer bore to his own native shore who was Helen? Some kind of whore of Babylon? One doesn't know who Helen was. But I picture her as being very, very, extremely pale.